If you'd open your Bibles to the second letter of Peter, that is where the majority of our lesson will be from this morning. We'll look at other scriptures, but we will use this letter as a guide for what we talk about today. And I'll mention that in a moment. First, a quick word, a brief preamble, as it were, to express again just how much I love each and every one of you. Time would fail me to express the blessings that come from worshiping in this location. I could literally start at the back of the building with those who the first Sunday I came up here before Katrina and I were married immediately offered a place to stay and how many strangers have been welcomed into that home to the front of the pews where when we were sick people drove over the state line to bring us food and things we needed and every spot and pew between the front and the back I could That'd be the whole sermon, and it would go long to cover all those, and I would still not do justice to that. So as we look at our lesson this morning, it is with love for each of you, and the expectation, my hope, that as I go through the words of God, that it reminds you and stirs you up from your pure hearts and pure minds, that you say to yourself, this is a good reminder, I'm glad to hear it again, and be encouraged that you are already doing works of love, that you are already being fruitful, and that now you will abound more and more. Jesus came to bring life, yes, life more abundant. That's my prayer and my hope and my expectation. Should it be otherwise, and you feel in your heart a conviction, do something about it. Do not say, I enjoyed hearing that, and then do nothing different. Do not say, wow, that, was, that, that hit me in the heart, and then do nothing different. For him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. Let the word of God not be a source of information only, but a source of transformation. And my additional hope is that as we look at the word of God today, it's nothing new or crazy that this is a tiny piece of the word of God that you are in all week. The word of God is not a cake for special occasions. It's daily bread and should be treated as such. Always, always on your own, with others, and then here together we get to do it together, and what a joy and blessing to come out of the world for this time. So that's my prayer and hope and expectation. We'll spend two minutes recapping last week, part one. That was about how to save a city, and the lessons we learned from that, of course, are that God is the one who saves the city, and if you desire to help God in that effort, if you want to be a part of God's work, that incredible plan of redemption that he has for all of us to be a servant in the kingdom, then you have to ideally open your eyes and not be blind. You have to examine yourself. Self-examination sometimes is that community effort, right? When we put things to death, putting to death is a phrase that implies the group as these in the Old Testament. They would get together and they would put certain things or people, depending on what's going on, to death. But we are now in a new covenant in a new situation. Paul read to us from Deuteronomy and that gave instructions if you're besieging a city to take it and conquer it and save it from whoever's in charge of it that's evil and just doing terrible things. Well that was physical warfare. But the principles hold true. God's principles do not change. God said destroy the wickedness for a reason. Destroy the people who are these people in Canaan because if you don't you're going to learn from them how to do wicked and evil. So the principle is the same for us. If we think of the city as a congregation or your own individual soul, if you don't put to death and destroy everything wicked, it's a little, I don't want to say it was easier to do perhaps, 
under the Old Testament, but if you're destroying a people and you see the people and they're evil and wicked, and remember too, God is patient and merciful. He told Abraham, I'm not sending you to the land of Canaan yet because the wickedness of the nations there is not yet complete. God didn't just boot good people out of the land of Canaan, all right? God had a plan, and even then his patience and mercy is great. But when their wickedness was too much and it's time for them to be destroyed, God sends the nation of Israel, they go through. That's uh, again, I don't want to say easy, but I believe you understand what I'm saying. When you have a physical people or a physical problem, it is so clear who the enemy is. But now, under this new covenant, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. The principles apply of besieging a city. Offer peace first, whether to yourself or another human soul. Offer peace. Begin in that way. And then our warfare is not flesh and blood. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this earth. Otherwise, my servants would war and fight. And it would just get all tangled up and messy. And it still gets tangled up and messy, but it's now spiritual. And it's not always as clear who the enemy is, is it? In fact, many times I look in the mirror and I, you know what, I, I think that might be the enemy. I, I'm the baddie. I, ugh, I'm not the good person here. And to embrace that and then realize how much God loves us and has saved us then takes us to where we are today, which is to look at the idea of how to live in that city once it has been saved. So we are going to look at how to live in a city. Now, you, at this point, we're going to kind of sort of talk about the metaphor for one more second, and then we're going to make it really personal. So... Once the city's saved and you move in, well, now you got to look around and go, well, how do we get life back together? How do we put the pieces back together? After a city's been besieged or broken up in war, well, now you got to replace infrastructure. you got to have people in charge of certain things. As we're reading about in our classes in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you know, the children of Israel get put out into Babylon. When they come back, they have to have people in charge of rebuilding walls and this and that and so on and so forth. So we understand that it's not enough just to save a city or save your soul. The extension is now you have to live in that city. And if your soul is what's been saved, well, you've got to figure out how things work now that you're under new leadership, that you're now a citizen of the kingdom of God. What does that look like? We ended last week with a question. And it took it out of the metaphor and, per, and, and abstract, as it were, and into the personal. And that's the question that you can ask yourself. I'll just remind you, and then that's for you to take care of later, because we're going to move on from it. But that question was, if so-and-so or anyone is dealing with blank in their lives, would they feel comfortable talking to me? Is it a sin? If so-and-so is struggling with a sexual sin, would they feel comfortable talking to me about their struggles? If so-and-so is dealing with lying, would they feel comfortable coming and confessing their trespasses to me? You don't have to raise your hands, but when's the last time someone confessed their trespasses to you? When's the last time you confessed your trespasses to someone else? I don't believe I'm mistaken that it's a command for our benefit. It's a principle of God that we are truthful, and a command that goes with that is confess your trespasses to one another. So when's the last time we've done that? Now, do we have to blast our business everywhere all the time? No, we have other scriptures as benefits the occasion, so there's a time and place. You want to seek out godly counsel from those who are immersed in the word. You know, we, we have elders who are married and have had children and lives. If you're struggling with something in your marriage, perhaps it'd be good to go to one of the elders. Maybe you're struggling with the idea of being a parent. The elders have been parents. Perhaps it'd be a good idea to go and talk to them. 
Perhaps it would be a good idea to get in the habit of confessing your trespasses because, again, your spiritual growth is going to be in proportion to the amount of uncomfortable conversations you're willing to have. It was mentioned in class today that comfort makes uncomfortable things more comfortable. Is that not our duty as Christians to realize and acknowledge unflinchingly that there are uncomfortable conversations we need to have and do our best to make it as comfortable as we can? So, we're moving on from that. That was last week. Now we're here to this week. How to live in that city. The letter of 2 Peter, Peter's second letter, was written by Peter. Why are we picking Peter to talk about today? Because today we're going to talk about silence and identity. And Peter was a man who struggled very much with his identity. He was troubled. And he just said stuff without thinking all the time. Now, Peter, we remember, denied Jesus three times. That's rough. Peter, we remember, always was saying things without thinking because he wasn't sure, perhaps, what his identity was needing to be in that moment. So Peter finds his identity, and then Peter still struggles with his identity. Remember, he's eating with the Gentiles, and then some brothers from Jerusalem come up to the city where he's at, and he withdraws himself because of what... So he still has identity issues that he perhaps struggled with his entire life. Peter had problems making sure he was confident and grounded and firm as a rock in his identity. Peter also is someone who the Lord confronted with those facts on many occasions. If we turn in our Gospels, keep your marker please here in 2 Peter because we're going to come back many a time. If we turn in our Gospels, let me get to where we're going to turn in our Gospels. Excuse me. Um, we turn in the book of John to the last couple chapters of the book of John. Jesus has risen from the dead and he's appeared to his disciples. Last few chapters of the book of John and we are looking at chapter 21 specifically and verse 8. When they, the disciples, got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. It's a very specific detail, is it not? A charcoal fire. We think of fires and we think, wow, that's a very powerful thing, a fire. I believe most of us, if we haven't done it a lot, at least once or twice in our lives, have just been looking into a fire and just kind of found ourselves lost in it, as it were. Just drifting off, meditating, contemplating, just, it's a fire. It just pulls you in. I do not believe it's an accident that a charcoal fire is mentioned here. There's another time a charcoal fire is mentioned on that cold night when Jesus was betrayed. And Peter warms himself at a charcoal fire. Have you ever had something come back to you in your life later and stare you right in the face? And you go, wow, the grace of God and my own inadequacy. Peter denies Jesus at a charcoal fire on a cold night and Jesus rises from the dead later and there with a the charcoal fire that Peter is looking at, he cannot help, I would think, make that connection. And Jesus says, do you love me once? Do you love me twice? Do you love me three times? And Peter at that moment begins to understand what his identity needs to be. So for us, the question becomes, what is our identity? If we turn back to the second letter of Peter, Simon, Peter, verse 1, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. At this stage, Peter is very confident in his identity. He just says it. 
Does everybody know what your identity is? I don't mean do you know your own. I mean does everybody around you in your life know what your identity is? Do all of your coworkers know that you're a Christian? Does everybody in your school know that you believe in God? Now again, time and place has benefits the occasion. I'm not sure it's conducive to appearing graceful as a Christian to just like grab a bullhorn and say, hey everybody, just making sure everybody knows I'm a Christian. I'm not sure that's the right way to go about it, but I'm not gonna say it's not either. I believe you understand what I'm driving at. Does everyone in your life know who you are? Do you find a way? Do you, tell you what, let me take the you out of it and put it on me. Do I find a way to bring God into conversations where otherwise it would not be? Am I at work and can I say, by the grace of God, I managed to get this done in a way where someone goes, he talks about God a lot. It seems like he leans on, I mean, he does stuff, but like he mentions God frequently, but it's important to him. Do I find ways to bring God into my life? And let's be clear about that for a moment. What's in a name? See, I just use the phrase, bring God into my life, and and that implies maybe that he wasn't there. But one of the names of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God doesn't leave. In fact, there's a tendency for me, perhaps, to say, well, where is God in this moment? Or when will God come and save me? When will God arrive? And perhaps I need to remember that God didn't leave. It's not Emmanuel, God's gonna be with us. It's not Emmanuel, God will be with us soon. It's not Emmanuel, God's coming to be with us. It's God is with us. I would suggest to you that all those times where we go, where is God in this moment? We've already missed the mark by so much because God was already there well before we were and he's just waiting in that still small voice and if you'll forgive a human expression, perhaps to say, I was wondering when you would notice me. So our identity is very much something that we get from our name and, and what's in a name after all? If we forget what our name means and where we come from, then we lose track of our identity. If you look at our, if if you say, hey, I want to figure out where I come from, we typically go, well, who are my parents? Who are their grandparents? And you go up the family tree and you do all these different things and you get to a certain point where you go, well, where did I come from? And if we continue reading on through the second letter of Peter in verse 3, we read that his divine power, reading from the ESV, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And then in verse 4, so that through them, his great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So let's think about that for just the barest of moments. We are partakers of the divine nature. If I struggle with my identity, it would do me very well to remember that there's a part of me that is a partaker of the divine nature. What does that even mean? I tell you what it doesn't mean, and then I'll let you inquire of the Lord and search the scriptures as we go and further on as we leave here. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that I spend the majority of my identity being affiliated with a group and making that my identity. Because if I pick a group, whether it be for a hobby, for a community effort, for anything that we might label secular, perhaps, right? That's a word we would label. Any secular thing. And if I make that my identity, 
Well, it starts to get really confusing on who I am. Peter, perhaps, was thinking of this physical kingdom that's going to come, that he's going to be a part of. And so he's kind of confused by different things, and he pulls out his sword and wants to fight. He just doesn't understand what group he needs to identify with. He doesn't understand it's the spiritual kingdom of God. So for me, my, for me when I look at who I am, am I like Peter, missing the point over and over until Jesus puts it right in front of me, and, and even then I could miss it, and says, look, you remember this? This is who you were. But with me, you can love and be a partaker of the divine nature. I would much rather my identity be wrapped up in Jesus Christ than in any person, group, belief that belongs to this world. Now, can we be involved in different things and groups and efforts? Absolutely. In fact, isn't that what perhaps a principle we can draw from the Old Testament? There's, there's things that are common and clean, and when they were used to worship in the temple or tabernacle, they needed to be consecrated. So you had common and clean right here, secular. That's lots of things in life. We all have secular work. We have secular school. It means it's, 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 just, it's part of life. It's common. It's at the moment clean. And then there's two options. We can profane those everyday parts of our life and make them unclean, or we can consecrate them and make them sacred. We can take our daily work that we do and do it as to the Lord so that no one has a reason to say anything bad about us. We can take our daily activities and make sure we are not impatient. We are not envious. We are not grumblers or complainers. We can take everything we do that is secular, common, clean, and we consecrate it by making sure that the way we do it is reflective of our identity in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, either everything matters or nothing matters. By that I mean the way we do everything matters or the way we do nothing matters. We can't pick and choose and say, well, just having a conversation with somebody at the grocery store is not really that important eternally. Isn't it? Why not? It doesn't everything in word or deed that we do do in the name of the Lord, doesn't that speak to us and give us a clue for what our identity should be? We read on in verse 12, Therefore I intend to remind you all of these of these qualities, always, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Thinking that I am right as long as I am in this body, since I know the putting of, of my body will be soon. Peter may have been confused about his identity at different points, but he did make an effort to remember the words of Jesus. And in John chapter 21, verse 19, Jesus spoke to him and said, When you were younger, you picked your own clothes out, and you carried yourself around. When you're older, someone will dress you and take you somewhere you don't want to go. And then it reads, and by this way he signified the death he would die. Peter knows. It's no surprise to him what may await him soon. But he does not despair. He continues on. We read in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Whew which you may do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Keeping your markers here in 2 Peter, please turn with me to the beginning of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Something that happens here as we pay attention to these words, these prophetic words, these scriptures, Peter's telling us, pay attention. We learn so much, and what we can learn, a principle of those who serve God, is that they can take conventional things, mundane, secular things even, and they can, in an unconventional way, use them to remind us of God. So this here is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's a secular, common convention to say, what's my identity? I'm going to go through my family tree. I'm going I'm to tell him this is my grandpappy. This is, I don't know who's his grandpappy, grandpop, whatever. But, you know, we go up the tree, this is how... We do it. 
we just talked about in class, like, I, I cannot get over enough, you know, Paul on Wednesday night, talking for Second Peter, Mike today in class, it's, it, we're reading from the same book. How many times can we say that? It's just, it's just, it's a revelation of God's goodness that those who seek his word and put themselves into it so often will be saying similar things. But we talk about in class, he's not his father. Joseph is not Jesus' father. So why is there this genealogy, this family line? Luke calls it out and says, as some thought, but Joseph was not his father. Matthew doesn't get as clear with it, but we know Joseph is not his physical father. So what does Matthew do with this? He mentions some specific people, and he takes this conventional family tree, and he uses it to remind his readers of all the things God has done for Israel. He mentions Rahab, a Canaanite woman. He mentions another Canaanite woman, and then he mentions the wife of Uriah. Doesn't call her by name, but we know that's Bathsheba. He mentions these specific points where God's grace and pivotal turning moments in Israel's history happened. He takes a conventional thing that somebody might say, that's just just a family tree. Again, either everything matters or nothing matters. And he makes it a reminder. And he calls it out specifically. He says, this is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's calling out and making clear that everyone remembers what God has done for the entire nation of Israel. And then he's saying, now here's Jesus Jesus is the next and greatest expression of God's love toward his people, just like all those previous things that happened for an expression of his love and power. So what can we do with conventional things in an unconventional way? And by that I just mean we use it to remind others that our identity is in Christ, not in other things. We continue reading in the second Peter and going into the next chapter, verse 2 talks about those who are not helpful, those false prophet types, those bad teachers. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Quick question here. I believe most of us would say we determine a decent amount of our identity by the things that we stand for and the things we're against. It's kind of how we do it. We say, I'm for this, that means I'm this kind of person. I'm against that, that means I'm this kind of person. So let us not pick and choose the things that we are against. So we have a word here, sensuality. Many times, perhaps, we immediately think of sexual immorality, sensuality, and we lose sight of the fact that there's a whole literal world of sin that we need to be against. Let me ask you something. Many of those who've grown up in a, in a healthy, godly environment or been around members of the church or had Christian parents, you can probably recall an occasion where when something bad sexually came on TV, and by bad I mean, you know, something immoral sexually, someone immodest, some, the parent, whoever, they changed the channel. Everybody probably have an experience like that? Like, oh, I can't believe it. How many of us have had similar memories for the other sins that show up on TV. When someone on TV loses their temper, why aren't we changing the channel or pausing and talking to our children? Which I don't have, so easy for me to stand up here and say it. Having been a child, though, why don't we talk to our children about that sin when it pops up on TV? And again, if you're already doing that and you have done that, wonderful, let your love abound more and more. What about other sins? Character lies on TV. Are we going to pause, stop, and go, well, this isn't good. This is a sin. We just don't like this? How did sexual sin and sensuality get the immediate stop, but not the rest of the sins? When our identity is in Christ Jesus, it's not partial. God is not partial. 
When our identity is in Jesus, we understand that the Lord, continuing on in verse 9, knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the righteous under punishment till the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. So again, there's some heavy words about very specific things there. And then despise authority. There will come a point when all that's now mysterious will be bright at last. In this particular phrase here of holding them under until the day of judgment, one may wonder, well, why, why aren't people just judged immediately as soon as they die? And I don't have a specific answer for that. But what I do think about is the fact that our words and actions are going to continue long after we have passed off our mortal tent. There's a day of judgment. And it's not only going to judge me for everything that I did right now, but then... All of those things I've said and done, all those ripples of words and actions that either I did say or didn't do, those continue long after I'm gone. We read in scripture over and over of how a parent, father, son, mother, daughter, how those decisions impact nations in the course of history. And all of that is recorded by God and is held ready for a day of judgment. So when I think of my identity, it's important to remember that my identity is not just me. It also very much involves those I interact with and those who will come after me. We keep reading, uh, but these, like irrational animals, a few verses down, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, they entice unsteady souls. This is where we talk about silence for a moment. If you're an unsteady soul, it's uncomfortable to admit that. First, you've got to see it, right? We talked last week in part one about opening your eyes, not being blind, and not assuming, and not having preconceptions. But if you feel unsteady, go to God, go to each other, let someone know. If no one knows you're feeling unsteady, how will they offer comfort and bear your burden with you? So my identity does not need to be wrapped up in, I'm tough, I can handle anything, right? Smooth seas do not skilled sailors make. Sometimes life's going to be rough and tempestuous and throw you and toss you all around, and it's okay to admit and cry out, hey, I'm afraid, hey, I'm worried, and then reach out for something steady for a brother or sister who's immersed in God. So what you're really reaching out to through that brother and sister is God Almighty, my identity needs to be wrapped up in Jesus Christ, and that involves expressing when I feel unsteady. I can't, you know, and part of that too, you know, if we live in a world environment that's hypercritical and we worry about confessing to each other, then of course we're not going to do it, all right? You know, this should never happen. I say should, but you know, if a preacher is talking about something specific, you know, he's like talking about a really sin and then there's that feeling like, well, I better not shift or scratch my nose in the pew right now or someone will think I struggle with this. And we laugh because you're like, yeah, I think maybe I felt like that a couple times or, yeah, I could see that. So let us be very careful to not be hypercritical and create an environment, and we'll get to some more of how to do that, where people feel able to confess. They do not feel judged. If my identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, then that means, we continue reading on through verse 17, those false prophets are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. Verse 19, they promise them. Who is that them? That's mentioned in the previous sentence. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Guys, sometimes we're barely escaping sin. Barely. Close. Just not even. It should, it should make you very cautious. It should make me very cautious. If I think I have arrived at being a Christian, to look at this verse and go, you know what? I probably barely escaped. 
only by the grace of God. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. And we know the next few verses ending with, and a dog returns to its own vomit because it doesn't know any better. That's its nature. A dog's identity is it's just existing. It has no grander goal or ambition. It's just there, returning to its own vomit. It doesn't know better. You could put good food in front of it. It doesn't know better. It goes back to its vomit. So I have to ask myself, am I just a Christian animal responding reflexively when someone yanks my chain with a scripture and says, remember, we got to do this one? Or am I a child of God? In love, understanding the principles of God, obeying his commands, and doing so in a way where my identity is never in doubt to myself or anyone around me. We continue reading on, and we read in the next chapter, this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed of water, and through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was flooded with water and perished. The winds and the waves still know the voice of him who ruled them while he was below. When you see a rainbow, does it call these passages to mind? Have we trained ourselves to remember that God gave us an actual physical reminder of his word in the form of a rainbow? It's not just pretty. It's not just a nice photo. It's a physical reminder from God Almighty that his word shall stand. If you don't do that whenever you see a rainbow, think of these verses and these and be reminded of the goodness of God. Please change that and be just in awe and love and reverence for this almighty God who manages to put a rainbow where all over earth someone could see it even if they never read the word of God. For the evidence of his attributes in all creation are clearly seen. So my identity is understanding that God has left so many signs for me, but I do have to open my eyes to see them. We read on, Beloved, do not overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. It's tough sometimes when we have expectations and we want things to happen right now, but that's not how this works. God's patience is his mercy. God's love is shown in the fact that he gives us time to untangle ourselves from sin, to put it to death and be spotless and blameless and presentable for that day. Not partial. You know what would be very embarrassing? If I die and then I get to heaven, and I say embarrassing as if there's not a million other things that are going to be more heavy on my mind in that moment, but embarrassing. And the books are opened as we read in scripture. Books are opened, the records of the things we've done and said. And there's a, there's a text message. Oh. There's a social media post. Mm. Those are just the things that are readily apparent. We had a class recently about not offending others. And I had planned, when I was preparing for that class, to put together a word cloud. Uh, for those who might not be familiar, a word cloud is where you take, say, 
a hundred pages of text from whatever source, several books or several websites, and then what you, the program will do is it will take those words and it eliminates the filler words such as the and uh and 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 all those, keeps like the verbs and the emotions, those kind of words, nouns, and then it makes a word cloud so they would be on the screen, and whichever words were repeated the most will be the biggest. So if you have a hundred pages of text and the verb that showed up the most was love, then love would be a giant word, and then if, say, mercy was there a lot, then it'd be kind of smaller, and then ideally you'd have like evil and hate, and those would be really tiny. That's kind of what I would hope for. So I had planned to do that, and I opened it up. Um, I do have a Facebook account. I deactivated it 14 years ago. Occasionally I reactivate it, and I, and I was going to put it together, and I just started going through, and I just got sick to my stomach, and I'm like, I can't even do this. I just can't. Deactivate it again. Now, Social media can absolutely be a wonderful way to stay in touch. There are groups of Christians who use it as a way to share addresses and needs. It's a way to stay in touch with family who might not have other means. It's incredible. But just like everything else, social media is a secular common thing. And the way you use it will either profane it and make it unclean, or it will consecrate it and make it an expression of your sacred praise to God. Which one do we do with? With anything. If my identity is wrapped up in how I talk, then I want to make sure I talk like Jesus. We read in verse 11, all these things are thus to be dissolved, the world. All the worth, the works are done, they'll be exposed eventually. What sort of people, in verse 11, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now that is uh, the ESV reading, different versions, King James and New King James, say perhaps what manner ought you to be in conversation and holy conduct. So what manner ought you to be? I'm just going to give you two quick examples that are both easily switched between the physical and the spiritual because they tie together. So we would never, ever, 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 ever say to someone, say, who's in mourning, why aren't you smiling? Aren't you joyful? You're a Christian. That's pretty tone deaf. Anybody in here, would you do that? They've just suffered a loss. Would you say, why, are you, why don't you smile? Shouldn't you be happy? Tone deaf. Mourn with those who mourn. So, like, well, cool. That, that makes sense. So let me ask you, we encounter going to the grocery store a lot, and we encounter people who might be having bad days. And this is a chance for us to associate God's name with kindness and lovingness and thoughtfulness. How can we do that? Like, well, this is, I don't know. This is, how would I do that? Well, if we want to, we'll find a way. Perhaps someone, the cashier, is having a rough day, and you can tell it. Why don't we ask them, hey, I'm just curious. What can I do to make your life easier? Is there a certain way when I come back next week or whatnot that I could put items on the belt that makes it easier on you? How many cashiers do you think have been asked a question like that? I'm sure it happens, because there is goodness in this world. Do not be deceived. There is goodness. There are people who want to serve others and be thoughtful and express in everything they do. And then you have that conversation. You know what? That cashier might not respond well or just be like, no, it's fine. They just want you out of there. That happens. That's okay. Isaiah said, Lord, here am I. Send me. He's ready to go. And then right after that, God says, there's only a small remnant are going to hear and listen. You're not always going to get a great response. Not your job to control responses. Tell people how to feel. Not your job. Your job is to be an expression of God's grace. And then you end that conversation with, God bless you. And then they have a positive association with the name of God as opposed to all that stuff on social media that makes us sick to our stomachs where people use the word of God in the name of God, in vain. 
You, God's name in vain is not just stubbing your toe and blurting it out. It's using his name for stuff like this where people twist the scriptures and bring shame to the way of truth. I don't want that to be my identity. As we close the letter, verse 14, Beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. At this point, I want to ask you a couple questions, and again, I'll decline to answer them. They're for you to answer for yourself. Have you forgotten who you are? Like Peter, multiple times, have I forgotten my identity, who I am? And I have to be reminded. How am I reminded? Jesus, the word himself. So perhaps it's a very good strategy in this warfare against spiritual forces that we look to the word to remind ourselves of who we are. Instead of trying to seek my identity in something or someone else, to over and over go to God's word. In those instances, we read, continuing on, in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. If you turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, our last scripture will be from Acts chapter 17. It's so easy to hate something. And it's much, much harder to love because it involves sacrifice. And I would challenge you to make sure every time we hate a sin that we counteract that with doing something of love. You might say, well, how can I do that, David? There's too much sin. There's so much out there. And some of it is just this big institutional machine. There's people who don't even care and they're doing all these bad things. What can I do? We can do what we've always done, which is look to each other, to our neighbors, to not overlook anybody laying in a ditch just because they're different than us or we're busy. We can be careful with our words, mind the occasion. One might say, you know, there's some things I can do. I can, I can vote for this. I can get involved in this group. You know, it's the day-to-day things that will make the biggest impact against sin. If I'm against abortion, then I need to make sure that everything I do with my family is an expression of love and joy to show what a godlike family can be. Because if I set a bad example, you know, you get to take 100 people, 99 of them are not going to read the Bible, one might, and then those other 99, they're going to read the person. They're going to read the actions. They're going to read that world's Bible of that one person. So if I say I'm against abortion, but then in a family setting, I'm just like critical, and I'm impatient, and I'm hasty, and I just don't create a good family environment. (sighs) And then I turn around and tell somebody, hey, I'm against abortion. You should have a family like I have. They're going to look at my family and go, no. And we could go on and on. If I say I'm against lying, but then I use weasel words to give myself excuse, I'm like, look, if I hurt you, I'm sorry. I probably made a mistake. Instead of I use the truth. Because if I say I'm against lying and I'm not a truth 
seeker. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. So please, when you're against something, don't be overwhelmed with all the sin, but think, these are the good things I can do to make a difference. We may not ever be able to complete the work, but God has not given us permission to abandon the work. In closing, before we read from Scripture, you've been very patient, and I believe God's words are always going to be much better than mine, so we'll end with those. We have a family tree. Christ, our older brother, Abraham, David, all the way back to God the Father. What runs in our family? Well, weakness runs in our family. Abraham laughed when God said, you're going to have a son. His wife did too. And God took that weakness and said, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him Isaac. The name Isaac meaning laughter. God took that weakness and turned it into expression of his power and might. We're kind of like David in many ways. King David. He's a man after God's own heart. What does that even mean? Well, he made a lot of mistakes, but remember when Absalom died? Absalom, who was trying to kill him and take over and revolt? What was David's response? He cried out, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I have died for you. Yeah, I can see why we call him a man after God's own heart. And Jesus himself was in our family tree. And Jesus was very silent in sacrifice. He was silent in the face of suffering to make sure what needed to be done happened. Work is love made visible, and he completed that work. It is finished, he cried on the cross. And I do think of one time when he was silent, and that was when the whole crowd was yelling to release Barabbas. You remember that? They're all yelling, release Barabbas. And sometimes the world feels like this. Oh, excuse me. Sometimes the world feels like that. We are yelling, and there's the din, and where's that still small voice? Where's that silence? Where's that... You know, many a time, doing a good deed has gotten in the way of my prayer life. And what I mean by that is, I was busy, and I didn't take time to reflect. So in that chaos and pandemonium of everyone yelling, Jesus stays silent. But I do imagine, if he had said something, he would have said the same thing the crowd was saying. He would have said, release Barabbas. That's the kind of love we have from our older brother, from our high priest, from our king, from God the Father. Redemption runs in our family tree. Have you taken the name of God as your family name? If you turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17, beginning in verse 26. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. They should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Peter, in, well, the Bible's right here. Peter, in his letter, wrote that we've obtained that precious faith. There's a certain point where we stop feeling our way and groping through darkness and blindness, and we obtain and have found and have grabbed hold of our identity in Christ Jesus, in God's family. Have you obtained that? Have you grabbed it? You still groping and feeling? Have you lost your grip? Has it been unsteady? Do you need encouragement? Open up and admit it. We read on, yet he actually is not far from each of us. In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
The art and imagination of man will distract you, it will entice you, it will trip you up, it will deceive you. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who are you? If we can help you in any way, know who you are and who you need to be and want to be. Please come forward while we stand and sing.